For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Looking to throw over the middle and into the end zone. Touchdown, Arizona State. We support each other's uh, teams the rest of the year, but during this game, all bets are off. That was all Keaton Slovis. Wow, what a play by him. One man to beat 15, 10, 5. Touchdown, a new NCAA record. Dante Pettis. Washington State has found a way to move the ball. It's incredible what we're seeing here in Pullman tonight. Touchdown, Oregon. They fake the handoff. Justin Herbert delivers a dart. I went to HR several times uh, about how the Duck fans treat me. Touchdown, Utah. I mean, this is the Pac-12 we're talking about. If only there were three extra weeks. To quote head coach Jimmy Lake of Washington football after the University of Washington had officially announced that they could not play in the Pac-12 title game due to coronavirus cases within the program. A lot has gone on this past weekend, not just on the football field, but around it as well. And we have all of the action to break down for you right here on Believe in the Pac-12 on the Believe Podcast Network, along with college football analyst Ryan Leaf. My name is Jonathan Rifkin. ESPN's Jason Fitz will be joining us later on in the show to talk some college football, Pac-12, and national. But Ryan, I mean, as of today, we're, we're, we're recording this on at 12.45 Pacific time on Monday. Oregon is now representing the North in the college football, uh, excuse me, in the Pac-12 championship. They will play USC. And, and I have to say, I'm happy that Oregon gets the opportunity, but man, do Oregon fans look dumb because they spent an entire week bashing Washington for, quote, backing into the, call, into the Pac-12 championship game. They were bashing Jimmy Lake for having a one-and-one. What was Jimmy Lake supposed to do? This was an uneven playing field with coronavirus. So, yes, I'm happy Oregon's in, but, man, Oregon fans look dumb. And Jimmy Lake was right. He said the Pac-12 started two or three weeks earlier. This mess would have been easier to sort out. What's your, what's your perspective on uh, this aspect of what's been going on within the conference? Well, I don't know if that statement's necessarily true because his whole team's in quarantine right now. So uh, they may not be able to play for two or three or four weeks consecutively if that were the case. I mean, you have no idea what this would have looked like if you would have started earlier. You would have had more dates available to reschedule things. That may have been the case, but uh, it is what it is. This, this year's about getting it done, getting through it, playing through it, not, uh, not doing – anything else like the conference easily could just announce USC as the conference champion right now. And I would be okay with it. They've been the best team in the conference in terms of being able to win. Uh, but they've scheduled a game and I think it's a great opportunity for USC to build on that resume. If they are able to dominate uh, on an Oregon team that a lot of people expected to be at the top of the conference, I think that does a lot for their college football playoff chances because from so for somebody who's been clamoring around a, a, a minuscule percentage, I think 0.00001%. Uh, I was told on Friday night by ESPN and their, their mathematicians that USC actually has a 49% chance of getting in. And we are at the precipice right now that if some, some things happen, that conversation is going gonna, gonna, gonna to be real next Sunday morning. That's the crazy thing is that we are at the, the precipice is a great way of putting it because who would have thought we even would make it this far on November 7th when everything started for the conference. And, and now here we are, we're at the end. Now there are games that have already been canceled for this upcoming week. We'll touch on that. Obviously later in the week, we'll break down the games that will be played uh, starting Friday with that championship. But I mean, this past weekend was pretty telling Ryan and, and I want, I know Arizona state, Arizona was on Friday. I will get to that, but, the USC-UCLA game. This was an important game. UCLA, they played pretty well. They, they had an opportunity to win. It took the fourth quarter for USC once again for the third time this season to come back and to, to claim victory in that game. 
I mean, was what's your take on this game? Because, again, it's the same old song and dance with USC minus the win against Utah, which looks way better now because Utah handled Colorado on Saturday. But, I mean, is UCLA good or is it a testament that USC is really only a contender in the fourth and final quarter when they need to be? Well, you don't need to be any other time than that, you know. Uh, they were down by 18 points against UCLA. And there's something to be said about being undefeated, Okay. It's hard to win. There are only 12 teams in the country that started the season 5-0. and Only 12. It's difficult. It's not an easy feat. Winning is winning. And you should be given credit for winning games, not, you know, losing close to a good team or losing to a very good team. That's, that's not how this works. They're 5-0, and okay? They have a chance to be 6-0. and they have, they have absolutely clutched um, L's out of the fire. Uh, three of the, their five games, definitely. Should have probably lost to uh, Arizona State. Should have definitely lost to Arizona and, and had a really good chance of losing to UCLA down the stretch. But the one thing that USC has over everybody else, and every coach will tell you this, if you could change rosters with uh, anybody in the conference, it would be USC. They have the most talent, period. And when the fourth quarter comes down to just great athlete versus great athlete, they have the greater athletes especially on the perimeter at the wide receiver position and that was proven again once again uh, on Saturday night what a what a wonderful comeback victory uh, that wide receiver unit for uh, USC is is arguably the best in the country oh, I've been saying it since day one ever since Jamar Chase opted out at LSU before the SEC season started that now USC has the best wide receiving tandem with Amon Ross, St. Brown, and Tyler Bonds. They showed out. But you know what I was impressed with, Ryan, was the adjustment by Graham Harrell offensively to allow Veve Malpea and Stephen Carr to actually run the ball, right? UCLA and, and your guy, Greg McElroy, did a great job pointing this out throughout the game. There was two deep very consistently for UCLA defensively. And what did USC do? They went and did something that we haven't seen most of the season. They ran the ball. Malapai had 18 carries coming into the game. He had 19 for 110 and a touchdown. And he was a big reason why in that fourth quarter, UCLA had to adjust to the run and it opened up the passing game for USC. So I think that Graham Harrell ended up calling a really fantastic game offensively, adjusting to UCLA's defense that, again, they played USC the way you're supposed to play the air raid, but USC went away from their, the typical game plan and they executed really well. And by the way, DTR, hats off to DTR, 30 for 36. 364 and four touchdowns. I think this was the most complete game that I've seen him play. I don't know what your take was, but I mean, UCLA is going to be good. They're, they are good, but they're going to be good uh, come next season with the pieces that they have and Chip Kelly finally getting those recruiting classes and getting this team together. Uh, what are your final thoughts on UCLA after this game? Yeah, I think they're the second best team in the league right now, just in terms of how they performed. You know, we don't have any idea what, what next year is going to look like. Opt-outs, uh, holdovers, grad transfers, things of that nature. But what we do know is that Chip Kelly's been able to patch together a pretty darn good and competitive football team. And uh, unfortunately for them, they were as close to being, you know, five and zero this year as they were to be in uh, being three and three. So um, it's, it's been an interesting year. And I, I was, it was a fun game to watch. That's for sure. There was some Talk about my boy Greg McElroy a little bit later, especially when it came to his uh, uh, Keaton Slovis projection as a as a first round draft pick. Uh, that that one was uh, that one was a little out there, but because um, yeah, I would say that it, you know if, if J T Daniels doesn't blow his knee out, I don't know if we've ever even heard of Keaton Slovis at USC. So uh, especially with what he's doing down at Georgia, but uh, things have worked out for both both quarterbacks, and USC is in in the best possible position of anybody in the Pac twelve. Uh, to buy for that fourth and final spot if Notre Dame were able to beat Clemson this weekend. Okay, so let's backtrack here. Actually, really quickly, let's not backtrack. Let's stay on SC for this last point. Um, and, and I'm sure we'll talk to Jason about this later on Jason Fitz ESPN. College football insider Will and host of Span and Fitz will join us later on in the show. But, okay, so USC's 15. You and I talked about this last week. You tweeted it. I said it earlier. I, I did a radio hit down in Fox Sports Southland. I mean, USC's got to be a top 10 team going into this week come college football playoff committee voting. Do you agree with that? They're not going to be. They need to be, but they're not going to be. They're going to be probably 13th or maybe 12th. I don't know. Well, this, it depends on what the committee wants to do. I would be interested to see if Oregon, having not played 
uh, sneaks into the top 25 at number 25 uh, on uh, tomorrow night. Uh, and then, you know, that's one of the bigger questions. How far does Florida drop and how high up does USC go? I have USC at six. Um, I think that gives them the best shot. I think if you break it all down when the season's over and chalk holds, Alabama thumps Florida, uh, Notre Dame wins, doesn't matter, a close game or, or they beat them down, beats Clemson. Um, that opens up the, the fourth and final spot, I think, to three, three people. I think it opens it up for Texas A&M, who will have one loss. Cincinnati, if they, if they win their American Conference Championship against Tulsa and are undefeated American champions, and USC at 6-0 undefeated Pac-12 champions. That, for me, the fourth spot comes down to those three teams. And if you were to tell me uh, what the committee would do in that moment, I don't know. But if you're telling me that a 6-0 Ohio State team is worthy enough, then a 6-0 Pac-12 Power 5 champion is worthy enough. And I could see USC getting in over those other two and playing Alabama, a team they were supposed to play to start the season, ironically enough, in the college football playoff semifinal. I want to backtrack here to something you said just now. Oregon could sneak into 25. That's probably a best-case scenario for USC, right? Playing a ranked Oregon team and handling them, you kind of want that if you're USC. You want Oregon to have a little bit more credibility because that adds to your strength of schedule resume, right? Of course, you need it. Uh, I, we talked about it last week that if the conference would have done what I wanted them to do, and that was to switch up the schedule a little bit and play the two undefeated South teams, it would have given USC a top 25 win if they were able to win, and vice versa. But they didn't. Instead, you know, Colorado loses to Utah. We'll get into that in a moment. But if they don't, if they don't have a top 25 win, I, that may be the reason the committee is able to hold them out. Also, game control. I think that's become part of the eye test is that have, have teams – like Ohio State has controlled every game. They've even controlled the Indiana game. They let them back in it late, but they controlled that game for, you know, for two and a half quarters – of that football game. USC has only controlled really uh, the Washington state game. Other than that, they've had to come from behind to win. So I think those are the two, I guess, red flags that are holding USC back in the committee's eyes is the fact the PAC 12 hasn't had, uh, you know, quality opponents. They don't have a top 25 win and they haven't controlled games, but uh, you, you can't deny that a power five undefeated conference champion. I just told you there was only 12 of the teams in the country to start five and oh, three have lost along the way. So there's only nine right now at the time that are undefeated. That's, that says a lot winning the games. I mean, look at the PAC 12, no one else has been able to do it. I mean, other teams had to, to fight their way through and, and, and give up big plays down the stretch and, and, and they haven't been able to get it done. USC has. I know, I know. I tweeted about it this morning, and I could not believe the backlash from USC fans. You'd think USC fans would want to be part of the college football playoff as a fan, right? No, they hate Clay Helton so much that they, they do not want USC to make it to the college football playoff because they think that would probably get Helton an extension, and that would ruin their lives. So uh, it was really interesting to hear him hear those fans come at me this week when I said this could possibly be a possibility. And the irony is all you want is, a, is to get some credibility behind Clay Helton to believe in him again. And so if you're looking at it as a glass is half full, what's really happening is, oh, Clay Helton actually can do something with this team and maybe capitalize in the future. So I, 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 I love, but I don't agree with the cynicism from these USC fans. All right, let's get to the three games that we do have to break down other than that USC-UCLA game. Let's backtrack to Friday night. It was a slaughter. In Arizona, Arizona State 70 to Arizona's 7. It wasn't 21-21, 21-7. I mean, the fourth quarter, Arizona State took the, the foot off the break. They could have scored another 21 points if they wanted to and won 91 to, to 7 if they really wanted to. Kevin Sumlin's out. And I asked you in our very first podcast, if ASC or excuse me, if U of A does not win a game, is Sumlin out? Now, the, the national turnover in coaching has since changed with Muschap, of course, being 
the first coach to go, and that sort of now is matriculated. Illinois fired Lovey Smith. Gus Malzahn has gone in Auburn. Now we see uh, Kevin Sumlin done at Arizona. Uh, we'll get to the, the list that was released this morning, the odds, if you will, for Arizona and coaching. But, I mean, for Arizona State, that's a statement game. Arizona is not a good football team. Yeah, they had their moment against USC, and they blew it. But overall, they're really not a good football team, and Arizona State just absolutely manhandled them. Well, I, I, I didn't – I don't think they're not a good football team. I think they've just been decimated, right? You know, you're talking about Tony Fields and Colin Schooler, who were the best defensive players on that team opting out because they didn't know there was going to be a season. Uh, losing their best offensive player, which, I, which was a quarterback. Um, there, there's been a lot of problems. And I still don't think – I don't believe that Kevin Sumlin, if he had lost all his games this year, um, he would have been fired. But what happened – on national TV in a rivalry game on Friday night, that they gave him a reason. They gave the administration a reason to fire. You had to it. There had to be an, uh, a, re a response for accountability after something like that happened. And sure enough, it, it happened before, you know, four days before signing day. I don't necessarily think that's a big issue because with such an, unknown year next year in terms of recruiting uh, I, I I wouldn't sign I wouldn't sign and load up on a big freshman class this year I'd have a bunch of scholarships available uh, to you because there's going to be a tremendous amount of movement in grad transfers uh, guys that this year didn't count and can have two years as a grad transfer that's going to be a lot of things to look at so don't look for the firing to make a, a big impact on Arizona's recruiting class that is that's going to be brought out to us on Wednesday um I like a lot of the names that they're talking about for the job it's just an interesting job it's a difficult place to win I think and it's always going to be that way but you need somebody who can really start from the ground up and um and we'll see who that's going to be yeah, really quickly, just on the recruiting aspect, there was an impact this morning, Monday morning, and, and again, take it with a grain of salt. Uh, Kerryon Grace, who was the highest recruit for Arizona, four-star wide receiver out of Chandler, which is in Arizona, did announce that he was decommitting from the school. So they did lose their top recruit. Again, you just mentioned you wouldn't even build up a strong freshman class right now with the circumstances and the unknown surrounding next season. So it may not be that big of a deal, but perceptively not so good for Arizona on that recruiting front. And as we saw with Texas this year and LSU, typically when one big recruit opts out, there's a matriculation. Um, and we'll see if that does happen with Arizona as well. Not that they have a, a phenomenal recruiting class uh, to this point in the season or to this point up until the early signing period anyways. Um, you mentioned some of the coaches that, or you mentioned that the coaching job itself is an intriguing one. Some of the coaches that have been named, the two front runners it looks like are um, are Brett Brennan and actually Joe Salvea, the defensive line coach, is now the top of the odds. He's plus 400 uh, to receive that job. His contract is up at the University of Oregon July, uh, January 31st, which means that uh, – and with no buyout if he becomes a head coach. So they could just let him walk and he could go to Arizona if they want him. But uh, there's, there's an array. There's an array of coaches out there that Arizona can choose from or that – if they want to take the job that can go to Arizona and try and, and take over that program and make it into something for you. Who would you like to see at the home at Arizona? Uh, I like Brent Brennan. He's got, he's got, uh, uh, Tommy roots. His brother played there. Uh, what he's done at San Jose state is, is incredibly impressive. Jay Norvell at Nevada for me is a, a name he's recruited in the air. He's been at Arizona state. Uh, he was, of course, with uh, Bob Stoops at, at Oklahoma and played for a national championship. And, uh, man, he's done a tremendous job in, at, in Reno with the Wolfpack there. So uh, another name that's intriguing, uh, Brian Nielsen, uh, defensive line coach for the New Orleans Saints. And he's a USC grad, played around my time, uh, has some ties to the Arizona area, can recruit. That name is, 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 is cropping up more and more every single day. Um, this job stays open. Uh, there was rumored that a NFL coach reached out to the University of Arizona. So uh, that's the name I, I would assume uh, did, uh, looking for that opportunity. Uh, I like Joe Salavea. Uh, that guy wrecked havoc 
he ran all all over the field and chased my ass down a ton um, <laughs> when we were playing. And he's done a tremendous job. All those great NFL guys you see on the defensive line out of Washington State the last five years, those are Joe Salve's recruits, guys he coached and recruited. And he's done the same when he got to Oregon uh, under Willie Taggart and, of course, uh, Mario Cristobal. So uh, all those names are great. Um, I, I would suspect um, they're going to look for somebody who's had head coaching experience. I think that's going to be important. So Salavea, Nielsen, those are names that, that don't, don't make the cut there in terms of Jay Norvell, Brent Brennan. Um, I'm not going to butcher uh, Ken's name, uh, head coach at the university, uh, head coach at Navy, who was the, who had the job, who had the job before Khalil Tate submarined it by saying he's not going to play in a, in a triple option uh, team. Turns out probably would have been the best offense for Khalil Tate to be successful in. Instead, they got Kevin Sumlin and, and here we are three years later. Lance Leopold, University of Buffalo head coach, another uh, guy who, who's been in, in talks or at least in the conversation surrounding this job, and Steve Sarkeesian, who I think uh, is much more likely to take the Auburn job uh, than to take the Arizona job. But we'll see what happens with Sark. Because Auburn is another intriguing one, and all these guys, all these guys are going to want to go. But Hugh Freeze is another one for Auburn. So I don't know. The coaching carousel is kind of fascinating right now. And then I'm sure Illinois will just pick up whatever's left. Um, from the uh, from sort of the the scrum here between Arizona and, and Auburn, but all right, let's move on here. So Arizona State gets the big win against Arizona in the in-state rivalry. There, they are at one and two, and then this weekend we'll we'll break down their matchup um, in the upcoming podcast episode. All right, Utah Colorado. This was a game that we had Colorado winning. We knew it would be a scrap, but we still had Colorado covering. Uh, Twenty-one Colorado loses thirty-eight to twenty-one. Now they were up fourteen to ten at half. And then Utah's offense scored 28 points in the second half. And, and it, it, it just looked like Colorado defensively broke down and they couldn't move the ball. I mean, Sam Neuer wasn't efficient in the second half. The defense looked flat. And Ty Jordan ran all of the Utah running back, ran all over them in the second half. He had 100 of his 147 yards and one of his two touchdowns in that second half. I mean, for Colorado, this has been, you know, a season where they, they played really well up to that Utah game. But there were moments where you could see – you know, defense looked flat. Offense wasn't moving the ball effectively. Obviously, there were times with UCLA and Stanford where they let the other team back into the game. They started off slow against Arizona. So it did feel like it was a long time coming for Colorado to maybe drop one. But I am a little surprised that they lost by 17 to a Utah team that is still finding its identity, definitely offensively. Defensively, it's been looking a little bit better. What are your thoughts on this game? Well, I, I think that, you usually can't measure the loss of one player. You know, it's a team game. But Colorado was leading and had scored the opening drive of the second half. And Nate Landman goes down with a catastrophic injury. And he was the heartbeat of that defense. And from that point on, it was just a different type of physicality that wasn't there. And this may be the only way, only way to have a, a measurable effect is, is to look at the loss of your defensive stalwart, you know, in that, in that, in that moment, offensively, they, you know, they've been kind of hit or miss all year. Sam Neuer, you know, looked great at times, but they just couldn't run the football. And that's where they needed to succeed is, is running the football. Broussard wasn't the same. Magnum didn't get it done. Uh, they weren't able to control the line of scrimmage. Utah was, and you know, I, I talk about, it being Utah's, you know, fourth game, they're two and two. This time around there, about fourth game or so, is when you would start your, your conference season normally, right? You'd play the – in a regular season, you'd play three non-conference cupcakes, maybe a more difficult <laughs> non-conference opponent. But that's where you'd be. You'd have a full spring. You'd have a full fall. You'd, you'd be peaking at the right moment, and that's – when the conference season would normally start and what we're seeing from the likes of what Stanford did, what Utah's doing, um, UCLA, things like that. That's, that's where teams get to at that point and start to perform with what their true identities are. And I think you saw a lot of that in the second half for Utah. It, it really makes me wonder what they're going to do next year. Cause Jake Bentley started to look like the leader of that team uh, as a fifth year senior, a guy that was capable of making 
plays with his feet and with his arm in that game. Uh, he did not win the battle against Cam Rising uh, leading into the season. He didn't have a whole offseason to prepare, but now he's shown the team how physical and tough he is and how he can win. I wouldn't be surprised if Jake stayed and tried to be the quarterback for the 2021 season, to be honest. I know we're not big into the recruiting conversation here, Ryan. With that being said, Peter Costelli, who's a four-star, he's the 10th-ranked pro-style quarterback, or excuse me, dual-style quarterback in the nation from Mission Viejo down in Orange County, is committed to Utah. Utah's recruiting class right now is fourth in the Pac-12, 29th nationally, which is one of their highest ever. Um, so they, they do have some offensive weapons uh, coming, I mean, an offensive weapon coming, and they have a three-star running back as well. But Peter Costelli is a guy who – I'm not going to say he's going to go in there and start right away, but he's going to cause some tension for that, for that quarterback position when he gets to Utah. So they're going to have options. And I think it's good that they, it's better to have options than to not know. And, and, and you're right. I think that right now, um, you know, what's happening offensively is sort of the byproduct of, of just the way that the season's gone. And we'll see what happens next year with, the pieces that Utah has and the pieces that Utah's coming in. So Utah wins 38-21 against Colorado. The final game of the Pac-12 slate. Now remember, Washington State Cal got canceled two hours before the game. How did this happen, Ryan? How does Cal get to Pullman and then they get it? Is it a false positive? What? How does how does a player get tested for coronavirus when they get tested before the plane? They're traveling with everybody. They're socially distancing. They're not with anybody, and then they test positive. What is going on? What? I just don't understand how that and I know what happened with Clemson and Florida State it's just beyond me how you can get to the point of playing and just not be able to play what are you put what are you doing to get coronavirus in in those four hours you didn't get tested nothing it just it hasn't shown up yet you can be infected and not show up in a test for for three or four days right so it, it's a matter of when the antibodies or whatever the antigens are are, are in the testing system so uh you know, at that point, I don't know what, what you can do, but shut it all down because you don't know how many other people he's already infected. Um, and now you have a contagious uh, uh, situation. So as we clearly saw, Cal, Cal and Arizona canceled for next week because of outbreaks at both schools. Cal couldn't feel the team either. So they're in a place now as well. It's, it's a limping to the end part of thing. It's disappointing. You have to get back on that plane and fly back to, to Berkeley, knowing you had prepared and traveled all the way to Pullman to get it done. And then for Pullman or for Washington state, I mean, you had that terrible taste in your mouth of absolutely getting worked by USC a week previous. And you wanted to get that bad taste out of your mouth and you got to carry it for another week and now have to travel and play an early morning game at, at Utah um, it's, it's a tough situation for, for both teams. Hopefully Washington state will, will get a chance to play this weekend and, 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 and do something, but they're, they're hitting a, a Utah team that's playing pretty darn good. So. Yeah, we'll get to that later on in the week in our next podcast, but now let's backtrack here. Final game of the day, Stanford, Oregon state, another game for Oregon state. They had an opportunity. They couldn't close it out. They gave up 11 points to Stanford in that fourth quarter lost by three twenty seven twenty four. Point of note, Stanford practicing in Santa Barbara this upcoming week for their final game of the season, if that does indeed happen. But they have announced that they are declining a bowl bid. They will not be participating in bowl season. And I don't think that this will be the, the last team out of the conference um, that we hear about declining a, a, an opportunity to play in a bowl. This has been a brutal season. I think everybody is sort of happy that we're at the end of it. I'm not going to lie. That we even had it to begin with is pretty absurd. But here we are. We, we've almost made it. Through the, by the skin of our teeth. Um, regardless, Stanford pulls it out after a begrudgingly tough start to the season. Obviously, Davis Mills with the false positive and then get back on board until two weeks later. Then three and two against an Oregon State team that was that's been playing pretty well. Again, they they've been in every single game that they played this season, including the two that they've won. So I think for Jonathan Smith, look, you want to win those games, but it wasn't a terrible season for Stanford. They got back on the horse and they ended up up until this point, above 500, your thoughts on this game? Well, I, I would have liked them to win by more than three points just because of our bet. But um, I knew they were going to win the game, um, in particular because um, they're probably the most improved team this season. And I think if you would have 
not had them go through the issues they went through in the first two weeks, there's a very good chance this Stanford team could be undefeated right now playing in the Pac-12 championship against USC. But uh, uh, I think they'll take what they can get. Davis Mills, does he come back next year? Um, or did he put enough out on tape to show that he's capable of, of playing at the next level? I don't know. I hope he comes back. I hope, I hope the majority of the players come back. There are very few that I would say uh, are can't miss prospects at the next level. Uh, I hope people aren't in their ears telling them that, you know, they can do this and do that. Now, if they need to do things for their family, you know, and, and being a fifth or sixth or seventh round draft pick, uh, and making a team and making that kind of money can change your life for sure. But I'd love to see guys come back in particular on the Stanford team. Cause I really think that they had, they'd become a well-rounded team to see that what they've done the last, you know, two weeks where they've, you know, been nomads, right. They've been on the road having to play these games and live in hotels and practice in parks and all of the things that go with it. And for them to win on the road and against, two quality teams in, in Washington and, and Oregon, Oregon State. That's very impressive by David Shaw's squad. All right, so we're, we're at regular season's end. We'll break down the games upcoming this, this next podcast at the end of the week, probably Thursday because the Pac-12 championship's on Friday. Who's your biggest surprise? Who's your biggest disappointment? I know that we have a very limited sample size and crazy extenuating circumstances, but based on what you've seen, Ryan – those two categories, who do you have? I think UCLA is the biggest surprise. I didn't think they were necessarily going to be a team that could win a game this year. Probably Colorado as well. Those, that's a, there's a close tie there. And uh, the biggest disappointment has, you know, has to just be Oregon. You know, simply, um, I think the expectations were super high. And uh, I, I expected more from them defensively, especially how well they've recruited. But it just shows, you know, it doesn't matter how great the recruits are if they don't have time to, to mold them and get them ready, um, it, it really doesn't matter because you got to play as a team and not as individuals. Um, and that's, that's an important thing to remember. You talked about the Utah quarterback coming in as a freshman. I mean, I, I love that the recruiting process is what it is and the likes of the five stars uh, that go to Clemson and Alabama. I mean, they, they make an unbelievable uh, difference. Those kids, go on to be exceptionally uh, exceptional successes. But uh, for me, the Pac-12 doesn't, hasn't necessarily, um, the recruiting process for me hasn't, hasn't um, been that important. Guys that make impacts immediately. Kayvon Thibodeau, I thought, you know, he definitely did late in the year, but it takes time. It really does. And that's what, that's, that's what we're going to see happen. Um, so that was probably my biggest disappointment. Yeah, I mean, I'm in agreement. I think that for me, you know, there's a lot of Oregon people within Oregon, not fans. I'm not calling them fans, but people who work around the team, who are beat writers, who were skeptical about this team because there were a lot of talk and they didn't back it up. And to me, I'm not disappointed. I'm sad because I'm a fan and I want them to do well. I'm not disappointed because they got exactly what was coming at them. Like you said, you have to play as a team and not as individuals. And you have guys like Kayvon Thibodeau, who's a fantastic player out there talking smack before the season, talking about how the Pac-12 was a bunch of cupcakes and they're going to run the table. You have guys like Tyler Shuck, who, again, has a great head on his shoulders, but came in with some swagger that was un unaccredited. And he had a very good first game. Other than that, I mean, he has some work to do as well. These wide receivers, Jalen Red, same situation. He came in. Where was Jalen Red this season? I, Micah Pittman was tweeting all over the place prior to the season. And he, I mean, he had one big reception, one for 66 in that first game, and has been largely silent since. So I think you're right. I think that the talent individually is there, but overall they didn't play as a team. And I think that's where USC sort of excelled. Originally, I think that, that individual identities on that team were what was holding it back. But eventually they figured it out. And that ended up being, um, you know, they got Drake London, who was somebody who just has worked his ass off to get a, be a part of that offense involved. And he was one of the bigger parts of that offense. Almond Ross St. Brown and Tyler Vaughn emerged, obviously, as the phenomenal wide receiving tandem that they were. Keaton Slovis kept his head down, kept working. I, I don't know if he's a first-round pick, but I, he'll no, be at the you next do. level. You do, you do know he's not a first-round okay. pick. <laughs> he is not a first-round pick. But, no. uh, but, but look, he's going to, I think he's going to play at the next level. You probably do too, in some capacity, at least get an opportunity to. Yeah. He's going to get an opportunity. I mean, but 
you know, it, he's not, he's a, he's an air raid quarterback is what he is. He's very similar to Luke Falk. Uh, I, I would, I would, I would I'd make that your comparison. And Luke Falk got an opportunity, right? He started NFL games. So yeah, I, I, he probably gets a look, but I, that would be my comparison to, to Keaton Slovis is, is Luke Falk at, at Washington State. I will say, and I, you can tell me if I'm wrong. I mean, I know Kurt Warner was his offensive coordinator in high school at Desert Mountain in Arizona. Do you think that that has some pull for Slovis as a potential pick at the next level too? Of course. The more, you, more information you have, the more, uh, the more opportunities that you've had to be around great players who have coached you. I think that's always a positive. Yeah. So, I mean, look, Keaton Slovis in the system works. We'll see what happens. By the way, Graham Harrell. Um, I, there were rumors that he was going to take over at Utah State. That didn't happen. Uh, I, I think that he was waiting for better opportunities. He's somebody that you could see taking over at Arizona. Um, I, I don't know. You know, I don't know what, what he thinks in terms of once you take a USC job like that, it, it's, it's different. I, 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 Steve Sarkeesian wanted the Washington State job last year. He wants to be a head coach again that makes me believe that he would take the Arizona job. Um, I don't know if you want to go to Auburn and, you know, just and be the second team in your state yeah. and face Nick Saban every single year after you've been part of that program. So I could see that happening, but for Graham Harrell, um, I, I don't know. I don't think there's been a humbling experience for him as a head, as a coach, maybe. Um, maybe he goes to he Illinois. May want, he may want something bigger. Uh, cool. And uh, I know, I, I don't think any of those, I think he stays, in a situation where he only can build things up, like him being successful with the offense every year, they're going to be successful offensively every year. They just are uh, with the talent they have, the quarterback play, and they may not win, you know, conference titles or, or national titles, but they're going to be good enough that uh, when a big job opens up, uh, you know, he also may be biding his time that he's been the real success there during the last couple of years with Clay Helton. And then when Clay Helton gets exited out, uh, at some point, maybe Graham Harrell's there waiting, holding the keys to the office. Who knows? When you say big job, are you talking a big college football job? Or are you saying maybe a potential NFL coordinating position or even a, a look somewhere at the next level? A big college football job. So like Auburn. Like yeah. if Auburn came calling for Graham Harrell right now, that's that's one I could see him going to. But I, I don't necessarily could see him going to Illinois. Uh, not necessarily not even to Arizona, to be honest with you. So What's more attractive? Is, is Arizona more attractive than Illinois? I would think so, just because of the weather. <laughs> That's just me. <laughs> um, you know, Big Ten, you're talking – any Pac-12 job is more illuminating to me because you have a chance to win uh, a championship there. You don't have a chance to win a championship at Illinois because of Ohio State. You don't have – you know, Jeff Schwartz and I got into this conversation this weekend, you know. I, I think our conference is – the most complete conference in the country from top to bottom. Anybody can beat anybody every weekend, Arizona, you know, notwithstanding though they, they could have easily beat USC this year, which is the top team in the conference. So we don't have an elite team. We don't have a Clemson. We don't have an Alabama. We don't have an Ohio state. And Jeff made it clear to him, like I would rather have one elite team rather than a conference that could beat each other up and down all, all, all week, every week. And I said, I'm just, I'm just not that guy. I, I want, I like what we have. I like the competitiveness. Uh, and if we have a team one year that goes 11 and one, like Washington a couple of years ago and gets into the college football playoff, great. But you know, if, 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 if the college football playoffs going to continue to do what they do and, and be the frauds that they are, I, I, I don't, I don't need to be a part of that. All right. So really quickly here, before we get to Jason Fitz, if the college football playoff continues to be the quote frauds that they are, What's the leash on the group of five breaking away? If Cincinnati goes undefeated this year and they don't get in, I mean, we're going to have to see a split No, they are. They're, they're going to go undefeated and not get in. They're not getting in. They're not going to put a group of five team in the playoffs. So what's the incentive for these teams to play? What's the Boise State? There you isn't. See it. So, they, why, so should they there isn't. make their – should there be a split? Well, they don't need to be a split. They just need to have their own college football playoff for the group of five. They need to have their own. I've been saying that for a long, long time. They're not going to get an invitation to the party. So just take a look in the mirror, you know, face the facts and start your own college football playoff. And it would be great. This year we'd have what? San Jose State, Coastal Carolina, 
Cincinnati and probably BYU in the conversation, right? Yeah, no, I'm with you. I think that that would be fascinating. And it would be interesting to see how the fourth team in the college football playoff would be pitted up against the first team in the, uh, in the group of five. And I mean, look, at the end of the day, <laughs> no, not you can't please everybody if you're the college football playoff committee. But right now, I don't think you're pleasing anybody, but maybe Alabama fans. Um, and, and, and on that note, to end this segment here, Ryan, USC, you said 49% chance of getting in. If they win the, if they win the Pac-12 and, and Clemson loses, they have a pretty good shot. What is their chance of, of coming close to competing with that one seed in the college football playoff, assuming they can get in? Not very good, but, but, there, but no one. The only team that I would say would have a, a chance to compete would be Clemson. They're going to have two losses. And so if that's, if that's what you want it to be, a competitive football game, then put Clemson in there at four, even if they lose to Notre Dame. Put them in there at four. Let them battle Alabama. That's going to be the closest game you're going to get. You're not going to get a close game with Cincinnati. You're not going to get a close game with Texas A&M. You're not going to get a close game with USC. Um, but if you, if you do do that, if you do put Clemson in with two losses, then you're just, you're just telling everybody it doesn't matter. We're just going to – we're going to – you know, it doesn't matter if you lose um, – who we believe are the best teams we're going to, we're going to put in the playoff. And that leads to the, the fraud part of what I, what I was talking about before um, this year and this year alone, and there needs to be an expansion and Tuesday night, they need to not only give us the top 25, but they need to let us all know that they uh, added two more bowl games to the college football playoff uh, for four quarterfinals. Um, and, and because of the year, because they just, you can't, you can't tell us truthfully that you can evaluate a team that plays six games and a team that plays 11 and make a comparison because Florida LSU taught us everything the other night that it doesn't matter. No one in the world, not even LSU fans for that matter, thought they could take a freshman quarterback and Max Johnson, go to the swamp and beat that Florida team. Nobody but the players on that team thought that. And because of that, the case, Something like that ha can happen to Ohio State. It's happened before, and you cannot evaluate the six-game schedule to an 11-game schedule right now. You just you can't do it. So you'd be setting a terrible precedent. You have to do the right thing, and you have to expand it to eight, game, eight teams this year. Play four games. ESPN owns the rights to these bowl games. They'll make it happen. They'll be a moneymaker. You'll have a playoff, and that's exactly what you need this year. Do the right thing college football playoff committee. Have you ever seen a unsportsmanlike conduct penalty more obscure than throwing a shoe? Um, I mean, obscure. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was, there was no question about it. It was exactly what it should have been. It should have been a penalty. Um, the obscurity one I always found silly is when somebody puts their finger up to their mouth and tells the, the crowd to shush. Shush. Yeah. I don't understand that at, at, at all at all but i mean yeah the guy picked up a shoe and, and tossed it i mean that that's like taking a guy's you know towel or it, it doesn't matter that's that was i don't i don't know about the obscurity of it it, it was a simple call i mean it was absolutely stupid of that player what a what a boneheaded move by him yeah the penalty that will and wilson that ultimately i mean look i florida didn't deserve to win that game there are plenty of other opportunities for uh for them not to for lsu to have stayed in that obviously York kicked that fantastic field goal but it was an opportune inopportune time to commit that penalty and at the end of the day you can't make boneheaded mistakes like that and uh the college football playoff committee can't make boneheaded mistakes like not expanding as Ryan Leaf just put it but uh on the other side Jason Fitz from ESPN will join us we'll pick his brain about what he thinks about the chaos that has ensued to uh to cap off the college football regular season uh, and he will join Ryan Leaf and myself next right here on Believe in the Pac-12. As promised, now joining us here on Believe in the Pac-12 on the Believe Podcast Network, it's ESPN digital host. He also hosts Monday Night the Monday Night Football Countdown show as well as all sorts of college football um, football shows. It's Jason Fitz. Jason, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Man, I appreciate it. It's, it's good to be and, and look, I always say this. Whenever I get to hang out with Ryan Leaf, I have to tell the world this story. I grew up a passionate, passionate Raiders fan. And to that end, when I was a little kid and I was a, a musician, my dad's rule was never practice on Sundays. Not because we came from, 
any sort of a religious background at that point, but because my dad didn't want to listen to a screeching violin while he watched the Raiders play. So <laughs> my entire life has been revolving around Sundays are for the Raiders and the Raiders only. So I, had, I spent many years saying lots of things to my TV to Ryan Leaf, only to then get the opportunity a few years ago to meet him, find out what a great dude he is, what a great hang he is. And all of a sudden, I felt a little bad. Like, I felt a little bad for some of the things I yelled at him. But any chance that I can hang out with Ryan, you know, Raiders fans don't always love that I, I love Ryan Lee. But, man, just uh, – by the way, I, I'll say this before we get into anything. Who you are, your story, how you got to where you are, uh, man, I'm, I'm proud of you, and I'm proud of any opportunity I ever get to talk to you. Well, buddy, I appreciate that immensely. I tell people the story all the time about how you, me, and Golick Jr., like spent the entire national semifinal last year uh, walking the sideline, like, like analyzing the game together. And we just, we all connected on the fact that a, we love the game of college football and that we're really good at what we do. And that was kind of cool to see our peers in action in like a really relaxed atmosphere. Um, I thought that was a really telling point that's really kind of solidified our friendship and, uh, and brought us to this point. Um, no, well, and you're leaving out an important detail. Not, I mean, Leaf was breaking it down. Like, I'm asking, <laughs> I host. Like, I love to ask questions, right? So I'm sitting there, and I'm like, why is this working? What are they looking at? What's going on? And all of a sudden, in the middle of answering a question, Leaf just starts screaming what the defense is about to give the wide receiver just so he's like, look for it, look for it. And then he was totally right. I mean, it was, it was beautiful. It was, a, it was a thing of art. You were, you were Tony Romoing it out there, Ryan. He was. He was Romo. I came away from that hang smarter on how I analyze that game because I was hanging around with an O-lineman and a quarterback that just, they were just predicting it as it was going. It was a thing of beauty. Now we'll get to the actual conversation. Sorry, boys. But that was a fun, what a fun game oh, to yeah. be at too. That might be yeah. the best college football game. Uh, I don't know that, that I've seen in, in forever. Um, the Pac-12, right? Um, thought far distant and dormant in the conversation for the college football playoff. And all of a sudden, Saturday night, this, this analytics – mathematician mumbo jumbo pops up on the screen and it shows USC 49% to make the college football playoff. What did you think when you saw it? And is that a real number? If now there's a big if here, if two things have to happen, Notre Dame's got to beat Clemson again and USC has got to win. And I suspect pretty convincingly in the PAC 12 championship, to open themselves up for an opportunity to be that fourth and final spot in the college football playoff. Yeah, I, I think it is real. And, you know, on rankings reaction with Golo Jr. and Christine Williamson and myself on ESPN, we talked a little to Gary Barta, the uh, committee chair at the time, and he stressed a couple of things that I think people are just glossing over. He stressed weeks ago that the committee is concerned about the number of games that Ohio State has played. So for any fan that says that's not part of the conversation, it certainly is, and the committee has told us that on multiple occasions. And the other thing is he stressed that conference championships matter to this committee. And we have to remember that the committee is essentially reborn every year. There's some different members. The way they vote on things are going to change. So in the past, I always believed the conference championships were simply a chance to get an extra resume tick, not necessarily a difference maker. But Gary Barta has made it clear it is a difference maker. So now you have a USC team that frankly has, what, three games at this point that I can't believe they won and didn't lose. But they had yep. a great advantage at the beginning of the year. One of the smartest things the USC did, and not, uh, the, the Pac-12 did, that not a lot of people are talking about now, was moving that first game into an early window. And we all talked about it at the time. Is it smart to have a 9 a.m. kick? But what the Pac-12 made clear is they wanted to be part of the highlight package all day. It was a huge risk to take because if that game's a dud – then all day we were talking about the Pac-12 is not irrelevant. Instead, we got this dramatic comeback win from USC, and we got this dramatic finish that we ran on ESPN all stinking day long. I think in that moment what happened is a little bit of a media hype came to USC, and that's just been slowly building. So I think that that, that seed was planted week one, and yeah, there's a, there's a very viable chance. You can't tell me that a Pac-12 champion USC doesn't deserve to be in over a two-loss Iowa State. I still have a problem with them being that high. I promise you I'm still here, even though my camera, for some reason, decided to be a little temperamental. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, look, you talk about Ohio State and, and the six wins, right, it, whether or not it's enough. Now, it, could an argument be made 
in the same vein about USC. Does a two-loss Clemson with another close loss to Notre Dame in the ACC champion get a little bit more of the benefit of the doubt because of the sample size than a six-win USC team with a Pac-12 championship because of, the, of what you just said, that, look, they're concerned with Ohio State. Why wouldn't they be concerned with USC as well? I think that that's a fair point uh, when it comes to Clemson. But anytime you're talking two loss, that's significant. And also, Clemson's already getting a ton of benefit of the doubt. I mean, the number of people that are looking to excuse their loss to Notre Dame as, hey, not only were they without their quarterback, which, by the way, shouldn't be a part of the conversation. DJ Uyunglele had a spectacular game. But they were without three considerably uh, important defensive starters. So I, I will give that a little credence. In the ACC championship game, if Notre Dame goes around and does the same exact thing to him, all of that benefit of the doubt that Clemson's getting is rightfully washed away. Frankly, uh, you can't justify him. If I'm sitting on the committee today, I don't care how good a team looks. It's never, everybody always asks, is it the best or the most deserving? To me, it's the best of the most deserving. And that's a nuanced difference. You can't tell me somebody with two losses is in the most deserving category. I don't care who their two losses came to. So let's break it down here, right? Notre, now, all these things were, were, were hypotheticals right now because we need Notre Dame to do something that a lot of people don't think, in particular Vegas, think they can do, and that's win a second time. If Clemson were to win, you have your four that's set. It's Alabama, Clemson, Notre Dame, and Ohio State, I suspect. Um, but if Notre Dame wins, it opens up that fourth and final spot, and I think it then leaves it to I, – I think you're right. I think it doesn't matter – who wins the Big 12 championship? The two two lost Big 12 champions not getting in, even though they're ranked ahead of a undefeated Pac-12 team right now. I think it comes down to three teams. I think it comes down to an undefeated Cincinnati team that, if they were to beat Tulsa, uh, they'd be undefeated in American champs. Uh, a one-loss A&M team and a undefeated Pac-12 champion. And if you told me at any other time and in any other place, if you gave me those three teams in a situation in front of the committee, the committee's going to pick the un undefeated Pac-12 Power 5 champion. I, I think you're right. And let's not gloss over the one loss for Texas A&M. I mean, we always joke on rankings reaction, the Ten Commandments of the Playoff Committee. One of the commandments is, thou shalt not get blown out. This Texas A&M team got their butts whooped by Bama. It was not a close game. So no matter what they've accomplished since then, and no matter how good their wins are, they have a significant and major loss to a top team. So uh, that absolutely is reason enough why uh, uh, they're not – and they don't get in a conference championship game to, to sort of show anything else. So I think A&M is just sort of stuck. A&M gets that, that credit of being where they are. But you can't put them, in my mind, over an undefeated team when that one loss is such a significant blowout. So now it becomes the dreaded eye test. And we're talking about an eye test against Cincinnati and Luke Fickle versus USC. Now – Game control is a metric that the committee believes right. in. Game control is going to favor Cincinnati, but strength of record, strength of resume, strength of opponent is absolutely going to favor USC. So this is where the committee's got to tell us what they care more about, how much you are controlling lesser opponents or how well you are playing against better opponents. I believe the Pac-12 obviously is better than the AAC, and uh, they're going to get that, that credit for it. So that's a very clear path for me. Although I've long this year, I've been big on Cincinnati all year. I think they're a very good football team. The power that comes with being a power five conference champion is undeniable. Jason, Ryan and I were talking, and to that point earlier uh, in our own segment about how there's a chance that even though Oregon was off this week, that they could sneak in in you know the 22 to 25 position uh, come the Pac-12 championship, of which they're not playing USC, and because Washington doesn't have the, the eligible, enough eligible players due to coronavirus. How important is it for USC's resume for Oregon to be ranked when they play? If Oregon is not ranked, will, will that be more of an impediment for USC if they do win uh, the Pac-12 championship versus if Oregon, even as low as 25, is ranked and come game time? That is such a great point, and you're right, and that's one of the reasons we tell everybody when we're, when we're breaking down the rankings. For anybody that doesn't want to pay attention to who the number 15 through 25 team is, you should. Because what the committee really is doing in 15 through 25, in my mind, is telling you that they want to give certain resumes a little bit more juice, right? Like, that's what it's all about. How can they stack it? And we saw that a few weeks ago. I think the committee was when they let uh, Oklahoma State jump up eight spots and Iowa State jump up four. What they were really doing in that spot to me was empowering the Big 12 to say, hey, 
They've got the resume. We believe in this conference as a whole, and you can see it. They've done that a little bit with North Carolina and the ACC, right? Like North Carolina has two losses, and their defense has been an abomination this season. And they're still letting North Carolina creep up because what's it do? It gives more credence to the win over North Carolina for Notre Dame. So, yeah, I mean, when you look at the ulterior motives of all of this, I think it's important that the Pac-12 look across the board and say, hey, find a way to get Oregon in there so that there's at least – some concept because right now the best win, the only notable win for India or for Ohio State is the win over Indiana. And I'll give them a lot of credit for that. Uh, but they get the opportunity with Northwestern to get another, you know, mid teens ranked win in that situation. So that's why I think it's really important. You've got to have ranked teams for, throughout your conference. So let's stack that 20 through 25 because that's committee giving value. On Tuesday nights, uh, uh, you, you break it down with Golick Jr. and, and, in your ranking show. I do the same on, on Sirius XM channel 84 ESPNU. And I've been, I've been really hard on the committee because I think they're going to set an, uh, a dangerous precedent. I, I feel that if they were to place a six, six win team in, uh, even though I think they probably deserve it, Ohio state, I think it's a problem. Um, you're telling me you're going to be able to evaluate a team that's played 11 games versus one that's played six. It's not their fault that they're only playing six. It's no, no team's fault in this process. It's the committees that they've been so rigid in their boundaries that they have not allowed for change this year. Um, so I've implored them and I want them to shock the world and do something crazy on Tuesday night, but not only reveal the top 25, but I want them to also say when they're done, we've also decided we are going to add two more quarterfinals and make it eight teams this year because of all the inequality and ambiguity. It's only fair. They won't do it, but it's absolutely the right thing because I can tell you right now, it's not something that actually can happen. And I may be speaking hyperbolically a little bit, but Ohio State simply can look at the Big Ten and go, hey, we don't need you. We're going to play six games a year against quality opponents. And that's going to be good enough for this committee to put us in the playoff. We're not going to risk going to Iowa or Purdue late in the year and getting our barn doors blown off by 31 and losing that opportunity. Why would it? How come they weren't able to be more open-minded and change it this year? Uh, that's a great question. And I I'll say – you know, not only that, but think about what we've seen moving forward already this year. Like, think about LSU and Florida last week. If you're a Florida fan, you regret the fact that you had to play that extra game. Sorry, you're breaking up. Do you got me? Yeah, you're good. Okay. Uh, if you're a Florida fan, think about last week's game against LSU, right? That's a game you wish you didn't have to play now. And it's proof positive that every time you play – you take risk. I mean, that's just the way that the, that, that the college football world is going to work. Florida decided to take that risk. I mean, realistically, if you're Florida, do you regret that you didn't look at it last week and be like, you know what? Uh, we're just not comfortable playing this week. And I'm not saying that that scenario is going to be real for anybody, but you're right. It plants the seed for that. One of the problems I have is that through this process, the committee's never been transparent. The committee needs to, number one, come out and tell us how many games they're looking at, how they're judging it. Number two, the committee should, in my mind, sit on a stage with everybody with the microphone in front of them. Their vote should be put up behind them, and they should have to answer specifically for why they voted, how they voted. The only reason they won't do that is because that level of transparency means that we can ask specific questions to specific voters on what exactly they're voting for. And I think that's what we should be doing. So, frankly, the committee could have looked at all of this and said, hey, we're going to figure out if, if we're not going to be fair, then let's what's the best way that we can do this? Because I'll, to use a phrase our, our buddy Braden Gall always says, fair is where a pig gets a ribbon. You're right. It's not life. Well, if that's the case, then I don't really care if it's fair for Ohio State. Like, put in the four best teams and put in the four best teams that we have enough body of evidence to be able to bet your house that they're one of the four best teams. That's the problem in all of this is that we're sort of picking and choosing when we want to be fair. So everybody wants to be fair to Ohio State when you're right. Probably the fair – how fair is that to Cincinnati, who's going to go undefeated in all likelihood and say, what else do you want from us? How fair is that – Florida, again, who plays an extra game, gets their butts kicked. And that's what well, they didn't get their butt kicked. But that's their own fault that they lost the game. But still, they put themselves out there. I mean, we have no idea how these games are going to play out, which is why they are played. And Ohio State has a great benefit. You're absolutely right. I mean, what stops in future years? 
once you get four or five wins and you're like, you know what? Look at the resume. Feel pretty good about it. We're just going to sit it out. We'll let the committee make the decision then. I mean, we once thought it was impossible for a player to sit out. Why is it impossible for a team to look at it and say, ah, nothing to gain in this game. We'll just wait to the SEC championship. See you guys there. That's exactly what Duke basketball decided to do with their non-conference schedule up to this point. Coach K said, screw it. This is too hard of a season. We're just going to wait until conference basketball starts and, and we could see matriculation to football. Jason, last question here before we get you out of here. Um, and I like asking all of our guests this because I think that there's an eclectic perspective on the conference uh, from people who are actually in the industry, from people who understand the mechanisms, the ways that these experts think when they're evaluating every conference and the teams within the conference. The Pac-12 perceptively, you can call it disrespect. You can call it undeserved like, or deserved disrespect, if you will. For me, the best regular season non-conference win for this, con for this conference as a whole was that Arizona State-Michigan State win a couple years ago. That wasn't obviously a bowl game. Um, and, and that's been it. Obviously, Ohio State was on the books for Oregon. They had North Dakota. Alabama was on USC's books this year. Oklahoma State and Arizona State were supposed to play. So all of that got stripped because of the coronavirus season and the conference didn't get the games on the slate that they needed to to build up the credibility nationally that they start that they need to everybody says usc needs to get back to its former glory days to really uh for the conference for all intents and purposes to earn the respect back that it once had is that the case or is there something else that this conference can do to finally get back to to the national perception of okay this is a competitive conference because ryan and i talk about it all the time the conference from top to bottom is competitive, right? They're beating up on each other. We like that continuity. We like that chemistry. However, it doesn't always equate to success uh, from a national perspective. What does the Pac-12 need to do st to start earning some respect back, both from our peers from the other conferences and from the committee as a whole? Well, cross-conference games are going to be a big deal. Yeah, I'm not going to hide from that. I'm also going to be really transparent about what I talked about earlier, too. Everybody talks about East Coast bias. And just for point of reference for anyone that doesn't know, I grew up as a little kid in Vegas. I now live in Bristol, Connecticut, right? So uh, I, I grew up in that same conversation about East Coast bias. Now I live on the East Coast. And one thing I, I, I got to admit is I understand it. Like on a common college football Saturday, I host two different shows on Saturday. One is early in the morning before game day. And one is at 7 p.m. And they're both in the ESPN app, right? On a common college football Saturday, after I finish my early morning show, I'm in a conference room by noon. And what we're doing at noon is we're watching every piece of action that goes through. We're trying to find the best place. We're trying to find the best talking points for the show at 7 p.m. We do that from noon until about 5.30 to 5.45. And then from six to seven, we don't really see anything because we're in show prep mode. We're in a studio, we're, we're raging, right? That show ends at 8 p.m. We, we, you know, when we do these digital shows, we have no commercials, we have no breath. We go for one hour straight, it is high intensity. When I finish at 8 p.m., I usually go in and I talk to my buddies, you know, Nagandi and Booger and all the guys who work on the ABC side there in the studio right next to us. We wear a mask. We, you know, we sort of talk about the games for a little bit. We have a good time. Then I leave. When I get home at 930, I'm 15 hours into my, my college football day most of the time. Do I watch the SEC late night game? Yeah, I do. While I'm, while I'm having a drink, I watch it. When I wake up the next morning, is the first thing on my mind? No. And I think that in a moment of transparency, one of the things that they did earlier this year, I mentioned it earlier with USC moving to the earlier kickoff. I think it's important. It's imperative for the conference to find a way. It doesn't always have to be 9 a.m. local, even noon local, 1 p.m. local. Find earlier kickoff windows to make sure that you're part of the conversation. Because I, I find it like a lot of times by the time I'm hosting college football live on the network on Friday, I will have seen the same highlight. 25 times the problem is realistically when everybody wakes up sunday morning the metrics are studied ratings are studied we know what fans want to talk about sunday morning and it's the nfl it's fantasy football it's not what happened late at night in college football nothing's going to change that trend so when you know that you can't change the viewers habits the one thing you can change is your kickoffs to make sure you're a bigger part of the conversation i think that's huge name and likeness is going to be something and i hate to get into the weeds with that but name and likeness is something that's going to give a huge advantage to schools that are part of it that includes all the california schools that's going to be a huge advantage to the pac-12 the next thing they need to do is take those recruits that they're going to get inevitably and put them in the biggest window where their highlights can shine and not because anybody's lazy not because anybody doesn't care about it because the people i know that cover college football live eat and breathe it love it and they absorb it every single day but we're all human beings so i would just say that moving to earlier kickoff times 
the smartest thing that, that has happened this year that needs to happen continually moving forward because realistically, it's all an ad campaign. It's all an ad campaign to try and be on the top of everybody's minds. And the other thing that can happen that can help is finally what I hope happens for USC is we stop talking about Clay Helton's job security. I mean, my first ever <laughs> show in 2016 was on ESPNU. And the first show it was, will Clay Helton be the long-term answer for USC? Like, good Lord, they need some sense of stability. It hurt their recruiting class coming into this year through no fault of his own. I think if they can get some stability in, hey, this is our brand, this is who we are, and then market that stability, it will change the Pac-12 in the, in the next two years. Yeah, Cliff Kingsbury flipping his job offensive coordinator to Arizona certainly didn't help SC in that perception as well. Uh, Jason, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. And uh, great info. I mean, seriously, great information. Electric. Make sure everybody go go hit that like on uh, on all of his social media. Give him a follow. Make sure you're listening to Spain and Fitz five days a week on ESPN Radio. And happy holidays, man. Really appreciate this. I appreciate you guys having me. Thank you so much. And that's the show. Awesome interview with Jason Fitz. Big thanks to him and ESPN for making it happen. We'll be back at the end of the week, probably Thursday, to get you ready for championship week here in the Pac-12. Until then, for Ryan Leaf, my name is John Flipkin, and this has been another episode of Believe in the Pac-12 on the Believe Podcast Network. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done. 